hope you take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 9 this morning. And the title of this sermon is uh, A Pastor's Plea, Be Obedient. Be Obedient. Archibald Rutledge, an American writer and poet, wrote about an encounter that he had with a man one day who was heartbroken about his dog. The man told Rutledge that he had worked outdoors, and so he used to bring his dog with him to work every day. That morning, he left his dog in the clearing and gave him a command to stay and watch his lunch bucket while he went out into the forest. His faithful friend, that dog, understood his owner's command and he did exactly what he was told to do. He stayed and he watched that lunch bucket as his owner went off into the forest. That day a fire broke out in the woods. And soon the blaze spread to the spot where that dog had been left. But the dog didn't move. He stayed right where he was, in perfect obedience to his master. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said to Rutledge, I always had to be careful what I told him to do, because I knew he would do it. Just as that dog was obedient to his master, we as believers are commanded to be obedient to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul wants the Philippian believers to know in our text here before us. In fact, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the commands that Paul gives in verses 1 through 9, and we've been talking about what it means to stand firm in the Lord. If you remember back in verse 1, Paul's initial command was, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. And then he went on to tell us what it looks like, what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. And we said that this happens through pursuing unity in the church, through living a joy-filled life, by being gentle with all people, by being anxious for nothing, by praying with thanksgiving. And last week we saw how we need to think rightly, to use our minds and to be those who are thinking rightly. And Paul has been giving command after command in a a rapid-fire fashion here. Through verses 5 and 9. Rapid fire fashion. Command after command after command. And all of this is to help the believers in Philippi know how to stand firm in the Lord. Or another way that we could say it is to know how to be a stable Christian. You see, God wants His children to be spiritually stable Christians. He wants us, as His children, to be spiritually stable. 
He wants us to live our lives in a constant, steady manner, not tossed to and fro. Not bouncing from one thing to the next. Not living our lives swinging side to side like a pendulum. But He wants us to be stable. He wants us to be grounded. He wants us to be rooted and to be standing firm. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16-13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he tells the Thessalonians, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The Thessalonians are commanded to stand firm and hold to the traditions, that is to the truth of God's word. They are to stand firm, have solid doctrine, understand doctrine, and not be moved or shaken. In fact, that word stand firm is the word stako in the Greek, and it means to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. To be firmly committed. God wants us grounded. God wants us firmly committed. He wants us to be stable. In fact, back in chapter 1 in verse 27 of Philippians, Paul said that he wants to hear that the Philippian believers are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so here in chapter 4, in verse 1, this is not the first time that the Philippians have heard from Paul that they are to stand firm. This is nothing new to them. But this is what he wants for them and what He commands for them to do. In fact, God wants His children to be rooted and grounded, to be standing firm. Now this morning we come to the final command in the string of commands as to how you and I are to stand firm in the Lord. And in this command, Paul is going to tell us that we need to be obedient. As children of God, Our duty, our responsibility is to be obedient to our Master. In fact, look at verse 9 and notice what Paul says there in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 9, he says this, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, although our English translation... Verse 9 begins a new sentence. In the Greek, there's a, it's a continuation from verse 8. You'll notice there in verse 9, where you see capital the, you see a period at the end of, of verse 8 there. But in the Greek, it's a continuation from verse 8. And why would verse 8 and verse 9 be connected? Why is there a continuation from verse 8 right into verse 8? Nine. Remember what Paul said back in verse 8. What did he say there? He said, dwell on these things. You need to think rightly. Think upon the truth. Think upon that which is right and pure and honorable and lovely. You need to be right thinkers, godly thinkers. 
He's commanding us as believers to have our minds filled with the truth. To be thinking about things that are honorable and right and pure and lovely. And that would tie right into the next command to practice these things because right living goes hand in hand with right thinking. Right living goes hand in hand with right thinking. You see, people act out in sin not because of some external force to them that's causing them to do it. They act out in sin because that is what is inside of them. It's in their mind. And whatever is inside of them is going to come out. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. What is the heart there? Jesus is talking about the heart is the mind, the attitude, the will, the motives. It's the inner man. It's who we are on the inside. We're made up of both the inner man and the outward man, the flesh. That heart there is the inner man. And it's what is in the heart that will come out of the man. In fact, Jesus goes on in Matthew 15, and he says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. All of these things come from the heart, from the inside. It starts in the mind. It starts in the mind. And what is in our mind, if we don't deal with it, it will come out. It'll come out. That is why we're told to have the mind of Christ. Which is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. What does Paul mean that we have the mind of Christ? Listen to what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says this, To have the mind of Christ does not mean we are infallible and start playing God in the lives of other people. Can't go around and start playing God in other people's lives saying, well, I have the mind of Christ. <laughs> he says, nobody instructs God. To have the mind of Christ means to look at life from the Savior's point of view. Having His values and desires in mind. It means to think God's thoughts and not think as the world thinks. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. And what do we need to do in order to have our minds thinking God's thoughts? We need to fill it with what? With His Word. We need to fill our minds with His Word. With the truth of His Word. And when our minds are right, then our actions will follow. And Paul knows that. And that's why he begins with the mind in verse 8, and then he moves to the actions here in verse 9. Because he knows and he understands it all begins in the mind. Fill your mind with the truth. Fill your mind with things that are right and pure and lovely. And then what will come out? The truth. And things that are right and pure and lovely. 
that will come forth. Paul knows that. That's why he begins with the mind in verse 8 and then moves to the actions in verse 9. Now as we look at this verse here in verse 9, we're going to break it down into two points. Two points here this morning. The first point we will call the command. The command. Notice again what he says there at the beginning of verse 9. He says, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things. Notice that word there, practice. Oftentimes when we think of practice, we think of practice in terms of something that we should do often. Something that you and I should do often. When I hear practice, I think back to my football days. I had to go out Tuesday through Friday and practice so that we're ready for the game on Saturday. You practice. But that's not the sense in which this word is used. That's not really what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not talking about practicing an instrument or practicing a sport. But he's talking about doing something as a constant way of life. You are to be doing something as a constant way of life. And so if I think about practice in the, in the sense of football, well, that's only for a season. Then I have an off season where I'm not practicing anymore. But what Paul is Paul is not telling us that you get an off-season where you just get to go out and do whatever you want to do. No, it's to be a constant way of life. Something that we are always doing. A better way for us to understand this word is like a doctor or a lawyer who has a practice. They have a practice. When we talk about their practice, we're talking about their way of life. That's their way of life. The Greek word is the word proso, and it refers to repetition or continuous action. And this word here is in the present tense, meaning it's to be something that you habitually do, that you are always practicing these things. You are always doing these things. What Paul is saying here is that this should be a continuous way of life for you, for us. You must practice these things. And what were they to be practicing? Well, they were to be practicing right thinking, as he spoke about in verse 8, right? We are always to be practicing right thinking, dwelling upon these things. But they were also to practice the things that they have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. Paul wants their minds to be thinking upon things that are true and honorable and right and pure. And then he wants them to put that all into practice. To be continuously living these things out in their lives. And notice there, there are four words that Paul uses in relation to what they are to practice. Four words that he uses. Notice first, the things they have learned. The things that they have learned. That word learn there means to gain information or skill through the instruction of another. To gain information or skill through the instruction of another. And what are those things that they have learned? Those are the things that Paul taught them while he was with them. Remember, Paul spent a lot of time with the Philippians. The founding of the church in Acts 16. 
He spent time with these believers. Even on his third missionary journey, he had a short visit again with the Philippians. We see this in Acts 20, 26. And what did Paul do when he was with them? What did he do? He taught them sound doctrine. Paul taught them sound doctrine. Remember the church at this time did not have the completed New Testament like you and I have. In fact, what we're reading right here, Paul was writing it at this time, right? So it it hadn't even arrived back at the church at Philippi yet. He's writing it out. They didn't have the completed New Testament like you and I have. So where did they get their doctrine from? Where did the church get her doctrine from? Well, they got it from the Old Testament and from the apostles as they were commissioned by Christ to teach the church's sound doctrine. The apostles were commissioned by Christ to go and teach sound doctrine. Remember the early church in Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching to the apostles' teaching. The early church, all they had, they had the Old Testament Scriptures and then they had the apostles and whom God was using to teach sound doctrine. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation, it's just these doctrinal truths that the apostles have been teaching. You see, Paul received direct revelation from Christ. He received direct revelation from Christ, and then his job, his duty, was then to pass that on to the churches. You and I don't receive direct revelation from Christ today, right? At least I sure hope you don't, or I think you do, because you don't. We find it where? In the pages of Scripture, In the Word of God, that's how He speaks to us. That's where God reveals things to us, through His Word. There's no more direct revelation that's happening. But Paul did have direct revelation from Christ. In fact, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. He says, I received this directly from the Lord, and my job, my duty as an apostle was then to pass it on to you. He was a messenger, a delivery boy, to go and deliver the truth, sound doctrine to these churches as he received it from Christ. He says in Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He said, I didn't come up with this. This is not something that I thought up in my own mind. It didn't come from man. He says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The very gospel that he preached, he received from direct revelation from Christ. And as Paul received this direct revelation from Christ, he taught that to the church. And what he taught them, they were to obey it and to put it into practice. That was their job. That was their duty. Notice the next word that he says there. He says, the next word he says is received. Not only did Paul teach them doctrine, but they also received it. They received it. This word has the idea of personally accepting that of which an instructor speaks. 
You see, you could sit here all day long and hear sound doctrine and not receive it. But he says, no, you received it. You took the things that I taught to you and you put it inside you. One commentator comments on this word and says this, by using received, Paul portrays himself as a link in the chain of tradition and implies the obligation of the Philippians was not only to receive it, believe it, and act upon it, but also to pass it carefully on to others. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy to do? 2 Timothy 2.2 The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the sound doctrine that you've heard me teach to you, Timothy, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's your duty to pass it on. What you have received, pass it on to others. But listen, you can only pass it on if you have first received it. You can only pass it on to others if you first have received it in yourself. And you see, the Philippian believers, they didn't just learn doctrine, but they received it. Paul knows that. Warren Wearsby says, It is one thing to learn a truth, but quite another to receive it inwardly and make it a part of our inner man. A lot of people learn truth, hear truth, but they don't make it a part of them, their inner life. They don't put God's Word in their heart, like David said, so that I might not sin against God. That's what the Philippians did. Paul knows that. That they didn't just hear truth, but they received truth. Remember, what is in you will what? Come out. That's what will come out. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 15. Whatever is in you, you receive it in you, guess what's coming out of you? You receive the Word of God and take it and plant it in your heart, guess what's coming out of your heart? The Word of God. Sound doctrine. Right teaching. They received it. Now what they received could also refer to this letter that he's writing to them. This letter would be sent back with Epaphroditus and they would read it and receive it and obey it. These things that you have received from me, these doctrinal truths that you have heard and received, you are to obey it, to practice it. Paul wants them to put it into practice. Notice, and Paul continues on, and he says, and heard. The third word that he uses is heard. What Paul is referencing here is the things that the Philippians had heard about him. The things that you have heard about me. Remember, where is Paul at this time? He's in Rome in prison. He's in Rome in prison. But word gets around, and they would have heard about Paul. And how Paul was doing. And how Paul was enduring adversity while he's there 
in prison, locked, chained up to a Roman guard 24-7. They would have heard about Paul and how he was doing while he was in prison. They had heard about Paul's character and his demeanor and how he had faced his trials in life. And they were to model their lives after him as he modeled his life after Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says there to the Corinthians, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Imitate me, as I am imitating Christ. They saw that in Paul's life. They had heard about it in Paul's life. As Paul was there in prison in Rome. So not only did they hear about Paul and how Paul was acting and Paul's character there in his trial in Rome, but they also saw how Paul acted, which is what he says there, the fourth word. Notice what he says, and seen in me. The things that you have seen in me. They saw the godly example that he was while he was preaching and teaching and while he was persecuted in Philippi. His first trip to Philippi, he shows up to the woman's prayer group, he preaches the gospel, they get saved, he continues to preach the gospel in Philippi, and what happens to him and Silas? They're arrested. They're thrown in jail. And what do Paul and Silas do while they're in jail? They sing hymns. They pray out to God and they sing hymns unto him, giving praise and glory to God. You see, they saw how Paul lived his life. They heard what he had preached, and then they saw it put into action. So that even in the persecution that they are going through, as believers in Philippi, they know how to act. They know how to respond because they saw with their own eyes how the Apostle Paul responded. How he acted in the midst of persecution and trial. He was a godly example for them. Paul modeled for them a godly life in his ministry. Paul's actions matched the words that he preached. His actions matched the words that he preached. He didn't preach one thing and do another thing. He didn't believe one thing and act out in another manner. The things that he preached and the things he believed, he lived it in obedience to Christ in his own life. And they were eyewitnesses of that. Eyewitnesses of that godly life that Paul lived. And so he says to the Philippians, practice these things. This is to be their life as well. They are to live out what they think as they think upon that which is true. Their lives were to match up with what God's Word says. Simply put, they're to be obedient. They're to be obedient. And that is what a Christian who is standing firm in the Lord does, right? A stable Christian is one who is thinking rightly and behaving rightly. Living out the truths of God's Word in their own life. That's a stable Christian. You see, there's a movement that's risen up today called antinomianism. It's been around for a while. 
Antinomianism. Anti-meaning against. And nomos meaning law, against the law. And it's becoming more popular today. And it's the belief that there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey. It's a false belief. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. But it's a belief that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey. It's an unbiblical movement that claims that if you tell people that they need to obey God and you preach the imperative commands in Scripture, well, that's legalism. That's the attack. That's the name then that's thrown out at preachers who preach obedience to Christ's Word. You're being legalistic. But it's far from legalism. It's far from legalism. In fact, did you know that according to one commentator, there are 1,642 commands in the New Testament? 1,642 commands, imperatives. This is what you are to do. Time and time again, imperative. If we aren't to obey those commands, then what are they there for? Why would God give us 1,642 commands and then say, ah, but don't worry about it. I know I'm commanding you to do that, but no, no, not for you. Why would God give us all of these commands if He doesn't want us to obey them? Now let me help you understand the difference between legalism and true freedom in Christ. Because there is a difference. Legalism is trying to earn some kind of favor with God through your obedience. Trying to earn your salvation through good works or through your obedience. That is legalism. But true freedom in Christ is obeying Christ out of love. It's reading the commands of Scripture and saying, Lord, I love you. And because I love you, I will do it. Because I'm your slave. And you are my master. We do it out of love. We long to obey Christ. And we're broken over our sin when we disobey. That's true freedom in Christ, right? That's the heart of a true believer. It has nothing to do with legalism. We're not trying to earn a right standing before God. But we desire and long to obey Him because we love Him. In fact, what did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I tell you to do. In fact, wasn't that the Great Commission? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people think that's the Great Commission. That's all we have to do. Just baptize them, get them in, and that's it. Done. You made a disciple. Nope, that's not where disciple ends. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. Because then Jesus says, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded you to do. That's discipleship. That's making a disciple. It's not just baptizing someone. That's the beginning of it. 
But true discipleship is obedience to Christ and encouraging one another and helping one another to live our lives in obedience to Christ and all the commands that He's given us in His Word. And we encourage them because we love one another and because we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, love Christ. And so we encourage one another to be obedient. John tells us in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not. We can praise God for that, right? 1,642 commands. And guess what? They're not burdensome. In fact, they're freeing. They're freeing to us. When we live in obedience to Christ, then we're living in freedom. That's true freedom. As we live in submission to our Master. You see, love is an action. Love is an action. It's not just saying the words, I love you, to Jesus. It's not just standing in a service on a Sunday morning and swaying and lifting your hands and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. But love is an action. You can't stand on Sunday morning and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then go out and live your life however you want to live it and please the desires of your own flesh. You would look at a person like that and say, you don't love Jesus because you don't obey Him. Love is an action. And if we truly love Christ, we will obey Him. Perfectly? No. Nope. Not perfectly. That's where sanctification comes in. Why we need sanctification in our lives. Continue to be sanctified. We don't obey Him perfectly. But we will desire to obey Him and be broken over our sin when we do disobey Him. You see, listen, church. Obedience matters to God. Obedience matters to God. In fact, John also tells us in 1 John 2.3 that we can have the assurance of our salvation made certain by our obedience to Christ. You and I can have the assurance of our salvation by the obedience to Christ. 1 John 2, 3, he says this, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments. That obedient life is assurance of our salvation. That as I long to be obedient to my Savior, as I am broken over my sin when I sin against Him, that there is assurance that I am saved. And I can thank God for that desire. And I can thank God for that brokenness over my own sin. Because that assures me that I am a child of God. It gives us assurance. And that's what a stable Christian is, right? Someone who has assurance of their salvation. 
Think about that. That's a stable Christian who has assurance of their salvation. They aren't, they aren't wavering, tossing around, wondering if they're saved or not. They know. They're saved. I'm a child of God. Do I sin against Him? Yes. So you know what I must do? Repent. But I have the assurance of salvation. That's a stable Christian. They can have the assurance of their salvation by their external obedience. John MacArthur commenting on 1 John 2.3 says this, John's point then is that external obedience provides evidence for whether or not an internal transformation or transforming reality has taken place. Whether or not an internal transforming reality has taken place. If it's taken place, then you're going to see external obedience to Christ. Because He's our Lord and He's our Master. And we desire to please Him, to honor Him, to obey Him and the commands that He gives us in His Word. When that internal reality has taken place, because we love Christ, we long to obey Him. We long for that. And that's what Paul's desire for these Philippian believers is. And for us as well. He modeled obedience to them and he lived his life in conformity to the Word of God. Perfectly? No. But it was his heart's desire. He longed to be obedient, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Then he commands the Philippian believers to be obedient as well. And it's a command for us too. This is a command for us. I saw a quote this week. It said this. Don't put a question mark where God puts a period. Don't put a question mark where God puts a period. God tells us to do something, we don't question Him. We don't get to turn that into a question. Oh, do you really want me, Lord? He put a period there for a reason. Because He desires that we would be obedient to His Word. We're to obey Him. And it starts in the mind. And when our mind is right, then it will lead to right action. And so that's the command. Let's look at our second point, point number two, what we'll call the comfort. The comfort. Notice the end of verse 9, what he says there, and the God of peace will be with you. (laughs) This is so comforting. This is a promise. A promise to the obedient Christian. Now if you remember back in verse 7, Paul promised that the presence of God will guard our hearts and our minds. Or the very peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. But notice now he says, not the peace of God, but notice what he says there. The God of peace. The God of peace. This is a favorite title that Paul loves to use of God. The God of peace. And he's speaking here of the character of God. That our God is the God whose character is peace. And therefore, He's the giver of peace. 
I was talking with a guy recently who said this. He said, Ace, the most miserable person in the world is a Christian who's living in sin. And he's right. He's right. Why are they so miserable? Because they don't have peace. They know the God of peace, and yet their sin has hindered their relationship with the God of peace. And even this, it all starts in the mind. Steve Lawson said, when sin, falsehood, and error enters your mind, peace moves out. The two cannot coexist in the same mind. When you have sin in there, sin and peace don't mix. It's like oil and water. And the reason why many Christians don't have peace in their life is because they're living in disobedience to God. Think about David in in Psalm 51. After David had committed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verse 10, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. What's his cry there? Oh God, restore that joy of my salvation. You see, David didn't lose his salvation, but he didn't have peace with God. Why? Because his sin and peace cannot coexist. He knew he had sinned against God. Therefore, he wasn't at peace with God. But David, with a repentant heart, he cries out to God for him to restore his joy. He says, I haven't lost my salvation, but God, restore that joy of my salvation. The peace that I had with you. And when I have peace with you, guess what? I have joy. I have joy. But because of his sin, his bones were crushed. He says, my bones were crushed. I feel the weight of my sin. It's as if my sin is crushing my very bones. And he was under the guilt and the weight of his sin. But once he repented and he drew near to God... God drew near to him and restored his joy and David was at peace with God. One commentator says, one will never know the peace of God until he has drawn near the God of peace. Listen, you may be here this morning and you don't have peace with God because you're walking in sin. You are a Christian. You have been saved. You've been regenerated. But because of your sin, you have lost that peace with God. 
and you have guilt. Let me just pause right here and just tell you that guilt is a good thing. Guilt is a great thing for us as believers. You see, the world's telling you you've got to get rid of the guilt. You've got to get rid of the guilt. You've got to suppress the guilt. Try and get it out of your life. Well, if I'm in sin, that guilt is great. It's wonderful. It's a blessing from God. It's good. Why? Because it tells us that something is wrong. It's like the the check engine light that tells us there's something wrong in the engine, right? If you were just to put a piece of tape over the check engine light or put a picture over it, as I've seen some people do, (laughs) guess what happens? Eventually that engine is going to die. But that check engine light comes on to tell you something is wrong in the engine. Time to pull over and get it fixed. And the same is true in our lives as believers. When we have guilt, that's the check engine light in our lives that's saying there's something in our heart we need to get right with God. There's something in our heart that we need to confess before God. There's sin in my life that I need to confess and repent of so that I can be at peace with God. So that I can have the joy of my salvation restored and be at peace with Him. What should you do if you have this guilt? If you don't have this peace with God? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Confess it before God. And He promises us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? That's a promise from God. What a glorious promise. And all we have to do is run to Him. Run to Him. Repent just as David did. David's a great model of that for us. Just as the Apostle Paul modeled obedience for us, David was a model of a repentant believer. Confess your sin to God and draw near to Him. James tells us in James 4.8, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Some people will say that's talking to unbelievers. I don't believe it is because unbelievers cannot draw near to God. Right? Unbelievers can't. God has to draw near to them first. That's how it works. It's the Father who draws all unto Himself. And then when we're believers in Christ, when we've been regenerated, now we can draw near to Him. And that's what James is saying here. Draw near to God. You draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. It's a promise. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Don't be double-minded. Be steadfast. Repent of any sin that is causing your heart not to be at peace with God. And then He promises that He will draw near to you and you will have peace. 
Church, this is a glorious, glorious promise. It's a great truth. It comforts our hearts, knowing that even when we do sin against our God, we can run to Him in confession, in repentance. And He is there, ready to forgive us as a loving Father who loves His children. What a glorious promise that is. Some of you are here this morning and you've never experienced the peace of God in your life because you're not saved. Because you're not saved. Your sin has separated you from a holy and righteous God and you are under the wrath of God. And that's why there's no peace in your life. Because you're under the wrath of God. But God made a way for you to come to Him. To receive that peace. He sent His only Son to die on a cross for your sin. To be the sacrifice. To be the payment for your sin. To make the payment that you could not make. That none of us can make. He died on a cross and He rose again on the third day and He lives today and He offers you the free gift of salvation if you will repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you can have that peace. That peace with God. Eternal life with Him. He offers that to you today. It's a free gift. Come to Him in repentance and faith. And you can be made right with God. In closing, how do we live a stable Christian life that's standing firm in Christ? Well, Paul tells us, he's told us through verses 1 through 9 that we must pursue unity in the church, live joy-filled lives, We need to be gentle with all men, be anxious for nothing, pray with thanksgiving and think rightly, and live in obedience to our Lord and Master. That's Paul's plea to the church. And that is God's command to us here at Faith Bible Church. It's what God commands of us. May we be faithful to live this out in obedience to our Lord and Master. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your commands. Lord, we know that your commands are not burdensome. But when we live in obedience to your commands, it sets us free. It is what removes the guilt the shame. The separation, the the lack of peace that we have with You is by being obedient to the commands that You give us in Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You never leave us nor forsake us. That even when we do live in disobedience against You, You were always there. Calling out to us. Disciplining us. Because you discipline those in whom you love. 
And you call to us and you command us and you tell us to confess our sin before you. To turn from it, to repent of it. And you give us the great promise in your word that when we confess it, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Lord, we thank you for that great work that you do in our hearts. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that doesn't have peace with you because they've never known you. Lord, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith, that you would regenerate their hearts, that they would run to you as their only Savior, crying out for mercy, begging you for grace. And Lord, we know that you answer that call. So Father, I pray that you would grant them that gift that they would have peace with you. And for anyone who is here who is a believer who does not have peace this morning because of some sin in their heart, oh Father, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts that the joy of their salvation would be restored that they would repent and run to you asking for forgiveness, believing the promise of your word that you do forgive those who confess their sins to you. Oh, we thank you for being such a great and marvelous and wonderful Savior. Thank you for being a loving and gracious and merciful God to us. Help us to respond out of a heart of love in obedience to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.